Danny. Danny, thank you so much for having me back. And it's a joy to be back. And I believe you put a spell, a good spell, uh, on the journey of Boy Swallows Universe about two years ago. And um, I've never, ever forgotten uh, how kind and generous you were to have me on early on um, when Trent Dalton and the world of uh, literary fiction were, were pretty strange to each other. And uh, I was very touched that you took the time of day and I'm, and it's so cool that you took the time of day again. I feel like I'm part of the Words and Nerds family. You guys are so amazing and lovely and such a family of amazing literary lovers and creators and people who advocate. Oh, thanks so much for your questions engaging with the novel and for everything you're doing. I know the podcast is hugely, hugely loved, so um, you're a gem. I think it's awesome the work that you do you know, we're out there in this pool of, of like how many writers there are in this country and we're all trying to get our book to the surface. Podcasts like this enable us to do that and also to talk about our craft. Danny, you're a gift from heaven. I love that you're such a great supporter and advocate for not only kids' books but adult novels too. I love your interviews across the board. Kudos to you, Danny, for, uh, for getting everyone to relax so much that they open up and tell you such interesting things for the benefit of your listeners. So, well <laughs> Thanks, Jack. Yeah, well done. That's so true. Oh my gosh, I just told you all these things that I've never talked about before. I could never edit that bit out. I could do this. And I was just so comfortable that I was like, I'm all this stuff. It's a special knack. Who wouldn't want to celebrate this fabulous podcast? Welcome to the Words and Nerds podcast. I'm author Vanessa McCausland and I'm thrilled to be guest hosting today's episode. On this podcast, we chat about books, the writing process and how literature has the power to change the world. Today, I'm talking with YA author Catherine Barker, who's just released her brilliant new novel, Waking Romeo. The book has the most intriguing premise I think I've ever read. The year is 2083, the location is London, and the mission is to wake Romeo. This book is Romeo and Juliet meets Wuthering Heights with time travel. I know, right? Amazing. Let me introduce Catherine. She was born in Canberra, started primary school in Tokyo, and finished high school in the woods outside Olympia, Washington State. In the years that followed, she went to university, became a lawyer, completed her master's in film production and worked in television. She currently lives in Sydney with her family. Catherine's first novel, In the Skin of a Monster, was published to high acclaim and won the Aurelius Award for Best Young Adult Novel, was shortlisted for two David Awards and was CBCA Notable Book. Waking Romeo is her second novel. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for coming on. Um, I'm on Sydney's Northern Beaches. Can you tell us where you're speaking with us from today? Uh, today I'm in Mollymook on the south coast, which is an area I know well. My grandparents were uh, from Oladella. Oh, lovely. That sounds very relaxing. Are you reading a lot? I'm hoping to read a lot. I had the US edits uh, for Waking Romeo due last night, which meant I was editing a lot because there are small differences between the different versions. And uh, as of tomorrow, 
I have a big pile by the side of my bed. Yay. So exciting when you get to finish your edits and finally go back to relaxing and reading and chilling out. Congratulations. I can't on, wait. Yeah. Congratulations on your US edits being done. That's amazing. Thank you. Um, now tell us a bit more about Waking Romeo. Give us your elevator pitch, if you will. I'm notoriously hopeless with elevator pitches, but when I tried to describe it to people when I was writing it, I would basically just say, look, it's, it's, it's Wuthering Heights meets Romeo and Juliet uh, with the end of the world and time travel. And that was usually all it took for people to go, what? <laughs> <laughs> and then I would like digress into 20 minutes of, of, of blathering, trying to describe the fact that it in my mind, it's a love story. It's a reimagining of two classic love stories into something that's new and hopefully a bit more modern and hopefully a little bit more balanced in terms of the genders. It's such an amazing concept. You're right. Like as soon as you hear that that first sentence, you just think, wow, I have to know more. Um, it's such also a mixture of genres. You've got... Um, you know, you've got a bit of romance, you've got the sci-fi sort of time travel, you've got classic literature and you've got this amazing dystopian landscape. How on earth did this incredibly unique combination come to you? <laughs> I suppose there were a lot of different strands that came to me at different times and I came up with the idea of the Dead Enders, which is, you know, for those that have read the book, um, a, a, a strand in the novel and then I was sort of thinking about love stories and the idea that when I was in high school uh, Romeo and Juliet and Wuthering Heights were were promoted as incredible love stories and I, I just sort of felt a bit cranky with the idea that they weren't particularly healthy examples as far as the women mm. went and for years I'd had this idea of what would happen if if there was time travel, but only in one direction. What if we could only move forwards? And I started extrapolating out and imagining what would actually come of that scenario. And it struck me as a really interesting metaphor for what I was seeing in the papers about environmental issues mm. and people's failure to take responsibility for what was actually happening right now and pass the buck to the next generation. And I suppose one day I just wondered to myself, well, what would happen if I put all of that into one book? Mm. And I had no idea <laughs> how tricky it would be, but the challenge of trying to weave such disparate elements together, mm. I suppose, is what kept me going when, you know, I, I needed to make it work. So I had to put in the time to try and find the right path um, and like the intellectual curiosity of whether mm. or not I could possibly pull it off, I suppose, was helpful when yeah. you, know, you, you get plagued with self-doubt and you feel like it's taken too long. Yeah, I mean, it's such a clever book. That's the thing that just kept coming back to me. This is so intelligent. Um, and it it's sort of, it's, it's a YA novel, but it expects a lot of the reader. Um, you've really got to sort of work your brain to figure out what's going on. Um, did you, I mean, you must have gotten in such tangles sometimes trying to figure out, like, just, I mean, I write really straight plots and I get so confused in the background. Did, did, how did you do it? It's an excellent question. Uh, this, this, this story has seen various different machinations 
And the truth is when it came to, you know, the first initial plotting, I didn't really plot it out. I sort of, I wrote and I knew it was going to be a love story and I knew what the themes were going to be. And I sort of wrote and got to the end and went, well, that's not quite the right structure. And Mm. I really had to fight to find the right structure. And when it came to the intricacies of time travel, I would just hold it all in my head. But because Mm. I was living and breathing it, I, I could tell eventually how I needed to balance it. So if I moved one thing, I knew the story well enough to know that I had to change something else. But uh, I suppose the, the magic of it was, you know how when from time to time you're sort of in the zone and it feels like you've left clues for yourself and it all just falls together. Mm. I had so many of those lovely moments um, wow. in relation to this book and some of the things that that probably look like I have deliberately sort of embedded in there trying to seem clever, mm. I, I didn't even realise until I went back and went, oh, wow, oh, that's what that means. That's and amazing. Those moments, are, those moments are gold. Oh, they are. It's, between sometimes. it's why you do it, right? Because it feels like that's the magic and that it's sort of above and beyond you a bit. Yeah, exactly. And I, I remember sort of where I was when I had those moments where I went, oh, oh, that's, <laughs> that's what that means. And look, I'm, I'm not suggesting that they happen all the time. And, mm. you know, sometimes it'd be six months and then you'd finally go, oh, oh, now I know what I have to do. And mm. I've wasted a lot of time there. Uh, so it wasn't the most efficient process by any stretch of the imagination. And and book three is going to need to be a lot more efficient. But there was a real organicness to this book, which I suppose in retrospect is a little silly if you're doing an intricate time travel novel, but that's something I learned after the fact. Well, it, you just had to have obviously so much faith in what you were writing and trust in your characters or something just to know that it was going to sort of turn out Um did it feel like you had to trust in something bigger than, you know, just the plot? I think so. I, I really, you know, it, it's it's weird talking about books sometimes because, like, I, I always feel self-conscious about going, oh, no, I'm really proud of this. But I'm so proud of this book. I went mm. through so much to write it and it took so long and I had to work through so many things as a person to to find the truth that I wanted to 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 shine a light on mm. so yeah this 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 book was tricky um and it was time consuming but I'm 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 proud of where it got to in the end uh yeah the, the characters uh drove it for me mm. I, I wanted them to have their voice heard and you know I was I was really grateful to have some of those moments where it just feels like magic because there are the effortless moments and some people, you know, some writers have effortless books from what I hear. They sort of sit down and they write and wonderfully comes together and I'm probably never going to be able to do that. And, and I'll, I'll take, I'll take 30 seconds, you know, that, that, that happen weeks or months or sometimes even years apart because those moments are golden, but that's not, that's not the norm for me. I'm, I'm, I'm a blood, sweat and tears kind of, really working hard to find the right bits right up yeah. as opposed to it all coming naturally from first blush. 
I don't know. Does that actually happen for writers, though? Do they just sit and it all flows out? I mean, I, 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 I don't know. know. <laughs> I don't know like, any of those authors. I, I, like, I remember, I remember hearing about like on the road and Jack Kerouac, and like that's the one he wrote in one sitting, isn't it? And I, oh, I remember wow. hearing that as sort of a teenager, going, "Huh, seemingly all you need to write a novel is a bit of inspiration and a clear afternoon." And I was. <laughs> I was so very wrong. I always assumed that there are writers out there that find it a lot easier, uh, but 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 maybe not. Maybe it's maybe the struggle is what we all have, and that's I what, think so. You know, what makes it good? Yeah, I think so. It's just that you know dogged persistence to get through the the bits where you just totally lose the wind from your sails. Um, but it's funny because sometimes you think back on it and you think, oh wasn't wasn't that hard and then your husband's like you were crying for half of it <laughs> it was really yeah, yeah. hard <laughs> well I in the book there's this the, the theme is there in relation to you know the, the the difficult moments are part of what makes us and I find that with life and I find that with writing that the moments that I just didn't know how to solve the the plot points that seemed insurmountable like the 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 sections where I thought to myself, this is never going to work because, because they became my problem children. I had to devote mm. so much more care and attention to them and they ended up being the bits that I liked the best. So, mm. no, I, I remember all of like that. I don't look back and go, oh, it wasn't so bad. I remember, <laughs> that, yeah, yeah. I don't even need someone to remind me that there were really difficult moments associated with writing this book, but yeah. uh, that's, 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 why those moments and those parts and those aspects of the journey in retrospect, uh, cheesy as it sounds, are my favourite bits. Mm. Oh, that's so heartening, I think, especially for, um, you know, writers who perhaps haven't been published just to hear that it's worth persisting and, um, yeah, having faith that you can get get things to a better place. Um, so it's... Obviously, you're a huge Shakespeare and Bronte fan. Um, you said that those were frustrating, I guess, in, in terms of their depiction of, of women just being in love and that kind of thing. But how many times did you actually read Romeo and Juliet and Wuthering Heights? <laughs> Excellent question. Well, I had a rule with myself, uh, which was the first draft had to be written without me revisiting the source text. I, I'd read them both in high school and I knew broad brushstrokes, but I didn't want to uh, create a first draft that relied on more knowledge than I remembered many years later, mm -hmm. because what I really didn't want was a book that was inaccessible to people that didn't know those texts. Mm. So I was basically trying to write on the assumption that, you know, maybe, you know, you'd heard of Romeo and Juliet and you knew that they died in the end. And if you'd heard of Wuthering Heights, that's a bonus. Maybe you've heard of, you know, Heathcliff and the Moors, but you didn't need to. Mm. So my rule for myself was whatever else I lay into the story, it has to be accessible to people that have no more knowledge than that. So mm. I wrote the first draft on my memories and, and what I had sort of intuited through popular culture and mm. what, what, I, what I just kind of knew because I live in the world. Yeah, uh, and I figured that if I did it based on that, it wasn't going to be too far off what other readers that hadn't really studied the texts might have. Mm. 
Mm. And so I wrote my first draft based on very limited exposure to those source texts, having only read them one time in high school. But then after that, in order to be true to the themes and really think about the characterization and and get the most mileage out of those two source texts, mm. I had to revisit them plenty. Um, and, you know, Shakespeare, Shakespeare has something cool to say about absolutely everything. Mm-hmm. So it was it was a surprising joy to get to delve into that because, like, I'm going to be honest, I didn't enjoy Shakespeare in, in high school. Like I loved the story and Baz Luhrmann was awesome. Yes. <laughs> reading it was, I found really inaccessible. And I thought to myself, how does anyone understand the language? Yeah. And, you know, as a much older woman going back to it, I can now look and go, oh, look, I don't understand all of it, but mm. I can I can see that that's quite beautifully said and and I I got a real thrill out of that and same with Emily Bronte, just actually getting to dive into those texts a lot was fun because I got to sort of pepper stuff into the book and I got to hide hidden meanings and there's the obvious stuff Mm. but there's there's layers in there that, you know, you'd only know if you were a total buff on some of this thing. No one needs Mm. to get it. I I just got a kick out of it and every so often someone will be like, oh, I noticed the blah reference. I'm like, ha-ha, I knew that one day someone would. One person got it. That's all you need. That was enough. And, yeah, it was my dad, but so what? Oh, it was so clever. There are so many layers in this book and that's just what I loved on reading it. Like sometimes I just have to stop and just go, wow, that is just so clever on so many levels. Um, Yeah, it's it's just, oh, it's a mind-blowing book, I think. Yeah. what else was I going to ask you? So my next question was about whether you're a plotter or a pantser, but it sounds like you pretty much pantsed this until you had to then dig in and start plotting. Yeah, I, I have to say it was both in the most inefficient method. So <laughs> I, I went through and I sort of wrote it and then I had to plot it based off a draft that hadn't yeah. been plotted to start with. Um, yeah, so look, it wasn't efficient. Uh, but I eventually got to know the story so well that I could, like, I knew where the plot was. But because it sort of, as I was saying before, evolved organically, mm. it's it's an unusual plot structure, I suppose, and it's written in acts because that's what Shakespeare that, did. That's so. so brilliant. I love that part of it. You just open oh. the book and it starts like that and you're like, wow, that's so clever. <laughs> it's beautiful. Um, so it's, it goes without saying that this is a really unique storyline. Um, so your, your first book, In the Skin of a Monster, from I haven't read it, but from sort of reading reviews, I think we could also classify that as a very unique structure of storyline as well. Um, have you, were you always the kid thinking outside the box? Have you always thought a bit differently? That's an excellent question. I don't know that I can answer that objectively, but <laughs> I suspect that in relation to writing, I've, I've thought about this because, I've, you know, friends have asked me this. Mm. This is a very weird book, Catherine. Like, where did that come from? And I suspect that there are a couple of factors at play. Uh, one of them is, as I sort of alluded to before, 
it, it can be a slow process and I'm trying to keep myself interested. Like mm. part of what happens when I choose a plot or it chooses me is I think to myself, oh, I can't possibly make that work. And then I immediately think to myself, but how amazing if I tried. Mm. And so often at, in, at the heart of the stories that I think about, there's, there's a, a mismatch of, of, of ideas that I try and find the common ground in. Um, and I suppose that's to do with, with taste on some level. Uh, another thing is I'm always like, I always worry about well, what if somebody else writes the same book as me? And so I think <laughs> a little bit of me is like, well, if I make it really like <laughs> unlikely, what are the, ch- like, there's no chance. That there is no chance, no chance. <laughs> so I feel safe that because I get worried that it takes me like, like what if it takes me a bit longer than it should to finish? And like, I, I just worry about, like, I would be mortified if, somebody thought that I'd written their book. So Mm. I think part of it's like this self-preservation thing like, oh, no, just like if I make it a little bit odd, then I've at least, you know, protected the idea that that it's going to be original. Um, But the other aspect is I, I made this rule in relation to my first book, which was whatever I chose, I gave myself a month or so to choose a topic. And the rule was whatever I chose I had to stick with. And the reason I made that rule is I knew that like my biggest risk would be, you know, the, the shininess of the new idea that didn't have any problems yet. And mm-hmm. I hadn't gone far enough down the path to discover, you know, why it was challenging. And I knew that I would be my own worst, worst enemy. And that the thing that I could do to help protect myself against, you know, constantly changing ideas was just committing to, all right, this is the idea. Mm. And once I'd sort of committed to an idea that was maybe not as mainstream as like I I kept having to go down the rabbit hole to find the answers because I couldn't swap ideas. And as I went down the rabbit hole, it sort of twisted and morphed and became its own thing. Mm. But um, I suspect, look, Waking Romeo for me, and maybe this answers the question uh, in terms of my own brain, like I don't see it as weird. Like it's it's as normal as as anything to me. Like like the things in there just seem really self evidently true, mm. which might be its own insight into my mind. But I look and go, <laughs> oh no, those are all of the themes that I see in society at the moment. These are Absolutely. the issues that I want to talk about. Mm. This is really obvious stuff I mean it's taking two works of classic literature that are held up as romantic ideals it's uh, imagining what is potentially problematic with the way they depict both femininity and masculinity Mm. and men and women and the framing seems really normal to me it's only when when other people read and go well that's not quite what I was expecting that I go (laughs) I mean once you've read it it's like how did no one think of this before? Because it does seem so sort of, I don't know, like it was always meant to be written with those two books and time travel. It, it works perfectly. <laughs> well, I'm so glad that you think that. I, I, like in writing it, I had all these beautiful coincidences, as, you know, so often happens in life, where mm. it felt right. And like Emily Bronte had this obsession with three 
which I discovered after I'd written the book and it was about beginning, middle and end and ah. the whole theme in it is beginning, middle and end. And then I was looking at Wuthering Heights and there's this perfect quote on page three of the book. I'm like, oh, I need that quote. And then I look at the footnotes and it was written by Shakespeare and like all of these oh, lovely wow. little moments that fall into place, uh, which, which, which really like, when you're sort of lost in the dark with a plot or a story, mm. when you can feel like you're meant to get a story out into the universe, yeah. it's, it's, it's one of those really nicely sustaining things I find because there, are, there were plenty of times in writing this book where I just sort of, I don't know that I was like sobbing about it, but I just look <laughs> at the screen and go, I, I will never finish this book. This will be the book where they talk about the fact that I used to be a writer and now I have a different job that I hate because I'm never <laughs> going to do this. Um, how long did it actually take you? Oh, it's an excellent question. I've deliberately <laughs> not done the maths, but what I know for, for an unfortunate truth is it was almost four years from when I signed the publishing deal uh, to when I saw it on the shelves. And as you would know as a fellow author, uh, editing's not meant to take four years. Um, I was surrounded by some really wonderful women who gave me, ironically, the time that I needed. And um, I had uh, some wonderful editors that sort of nurtured and helped me. Mm. But, you know, my, my, my life became really complicated right after I signed the publishing deal and the trajectory of finishing this love story went mm. hand in hand with the trajectory of, you know, me reshaping my life. So it was mm. like there's a bit in there about like home brand therapy. I'm like, mm, it's so close to the truth. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. But, I mean, publishing does take a long time. I mean, it's so slow. Um, and in a way that's the beauty of it, I guess. You, you can't just, well, some people, I guess, do churn things out but um I think there's a beauty in taking that time and getting it right and I think with this book you can really feel that it's so considered and so precise um yeah I couldn't have written this book I like I I, I signed I had a, I had a draft that I signed on mm. and it's very different to the book that that is on the shelves now or that will you know be coming out in America and uh, as much and all as at the time I wasn't grateful for the struggles I went through with this book to finish it, I can now look at it and be really glad for all of those struggles because I wouldn't have the same book mm. if I hadn't have had all of that time like lost in the dark with the plot and the characters and not knowing if I was ever going to finish mm. because bit by bit i had to pick up all the pieces mm. of this story and I had to get them right and towards the end like I was fanatical about it. like no no every word is going to be correct I put so much into this book yeah, it yeah. needs to be right so um one of the things that I'm really grateful for is that I had the time which is a complete luxury and indulgence that that authors don't always get but because I was already so late with the manuscript no one, like, I'm not even sure that they necessarily thought it was going to get delivered. So I, I had the space to actually get the story right in my own mind, like in my own time. But, mm. but yeah, I, 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 I had time. Yeah. And that's, that's yeah, very poignant because this book is all about time. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, 
it it also feels so very right now the character of Jules Juliet is a young woman who is finding her own story in these two classic stories where the women are just mainly all about love um how did that character and her sort of journey come about and it it's amazing that it's come out right now where it just feels it feels like everything is coming to a head in terms of you know women finding their voices and yeah i mean obviously you wrote this a long time ago but it was something that um you know that's obviously interested you for for many years well my friends and i have this saying which is everything happens in perfect timing and uh i i i really think that that's true there's a lot of stuff that 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 I had been thinking of in themes for a long time, but only crystallised, you know, as it was all coming together. And there were all of these wonderful moments where, like, like Rosalind had said to Jules, like, you know, she stands up and says, me too. And then the me too mm. movement happens, like, oh, that's cool. Mm. Um, but a lot of the, the themes around Jules uh do reflect what's happening at the moment but gosh a lot of the themes that are happening at the moment I suspect are just a bit overdue so the fact that I was writing about them a few years ago and this idea of what narcissism looks like and does and Mm -hmm. the idea that 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 young women need to frame themselves outside of a love story and Mm -hmm. that the love story has to start with yourself they're not new ideas um and you know it's a shame that they're only really coming into Mm. you know the spotlight of the media now Mm. but um i'm i'm really glad you know not in connection to the book but in connection to the fact that i'm a human that that some of these themes are actually getting the light of day because it's it's really overdue and do you think i mean this book is ya do you think it's even more that younger women perhaps are even more sort of, uh, it, it, what's the word, that it means more to them even than older women in terms of them being, um, I don't know, Jules just seems like such a passionate, strong 18, is it 18-year-old? She's 18. Um, Various ages through the book. But yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, do you think that that younger generation sort of, Uh, I don't know they just they sort of breathe it in a very elemental level that they know what who they are and that they they want to have power and agency well I hope that they breathe it in in a really elemental way that's sort of you know one of the things I really admire about this upcoming generation Mm. Uh, it I would have liked someone to point out um, some of the issues with, you know, Wuthering Heights and Romeo and Juliet in terms of romantic ideals when I was a teenager. But if I'm being really honest, some of the lessons that that are fleshed out in the book, I obviously didn't completely learn when I was a teenager and mm-hmm. I was still learning them quite quite a few years later. So, look, I, I hope that they resonate with teenagers, um, uh, but if there's the odd, slightly older woman out there that hasn't quite managed the perfect conception of love uh by the time she hits 20 I hope that it reaches her too because I certainly wasn't someone that had it all together uh by the close of my teenage years no no I don't think any of us were really (laughs) 
Um, and oh, speak- works in progress. <laughs> That's why we need books. <laughs> um, so. What what attracts you to YA as a genre? It's a great question. Uh, the teenage years were just really powerful years to me, and mm-hmm. everything just felt so visceral and important and mm. and immediate and I never got past that feeling of those years and I watch teenagers and like I feel like people become more rounded but but there's something that's just never replicated outside of the vibrancy of, of that time of life and I really admire it mm. and what I love about YA is that the writing like it needs to get to the point it can't waffle around like well I mean I suppose in 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 the subgenre that I write in but I like that you can you can deal with big stuff mm. like and lots of it and you can talk about all the things that really matter to your heart mm. and feel like you have license to do so and I know that that can happen in you know adult literature too but my feeling was in terms of trying to write um adult fiction which I've not tried to do that I feel like my instinct would be that I had to be more subtle and more nuanced and Mm. and and I I just want I want to paint everything in big colors Mm. Uh, also I love reading YA so Mm -hmm. it felt really natural to me I I I read YA because I like the immediacy of the stories and I look to be honest I've never really contemplated you know, writing in any other genre. Like when it came to writing a book, it was just a no-brainer that mm. I wanted to write young adult fiction. Yeah, I think a lot of the time it's that you're compelled to write what you're reading because, you know, while you're never replicating any book, everything's sort of working together to inspire you to then, you know, come up with something yourself on, on a very subliminal sort of level, of course. Um, but do you read um, sort of like, your books aren't afraid to go to quite dark, challenging places. Is that the sort of YA that you read? No. I, and <laughs> I'm a total, like my, my US editor was questioning a passage saying, this is a bit dark, I'm a bit of a wuss. And I looked and went, oh, but I'm I'm the biggest wuss ever. I, I can't watch horror films. I can't, mm. I, don't, I don't like watching dark. I like rom-coms, right? So, like, if uh-huh. I'm watching television, I'd like it to be a rom-com, please, because it <laughs> makes me happy. Uh, no, but, uh, I think that when it comes to writing a book, I know, uh, the investment that it takes. I know how much time and and heart and soul has to go into making it true to me and authentic Mm. for me, which, which means I'm, I'm, I'm really investing. And I suspect that when I'm choosing themes or approaches it's to do with what really feels important so Mm. the the stories I've only I've only written two books but in both of them I was traversing territory that just really seemed burningly important to me so it wasn't that I wanted to explore things that were dark necessarily Mm. you know uh, Waking Romeo is a love story first and foremost Mm. but I wanted to to dive into all the stuff that really mattered because, mm. you know, there's a finite number of books that anyone can write. And, and I know that, you know, I know that I don't have an infinite number in me, so I want everyone to count. Mm. 
which means I'm wanting to explore the stuff that I, I just really want people to hear. Mm. And, you know, in, in a world such as ours that involves light and shade, I guess, there's, yeah. there's a lot of stuff going on in the world that, that, that we need to address. So Absolutely. it's not an intention and no, it's not the case that I read sort of dark fiction, although I do like dystopian fiction. It's, mm. it's really more reflective of the burning issues that matter to me um, as opposed to a genre decision. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering, you've worked in film and TV and reading this book, it's very visual. Um, how has, has, has that sort of seeped into your fi fiction writing, having that experience in those That's a great industries? question. Um, look, I don't know whether or not my experience in that field necessarily informed the book, but what I do know is sometimes different stories will sort of arrive in my brain a bit differently. And this one was really visual. Like I mm. could, like ironic since it's, it's like exploring two works of literature. So you would think mm. it would be word-based yeah. and there's a lot of word play in there but when i would when i would be thinking about the scenes i would be seeing the scenes and uh sometimes when a scene was problematic the things that i'd learned at film school in terms of how you might shoot a scene would would help me the the first scene with the dead enders so from so from ellis's perspective like it took me ages to work out how i could introduce everyone mm. simply and introduce their world and the difference between their world and Jules's world simply and it might you know it's only it's it's a chapter that's a couple of pages so I'm I'm sure it doesn't look like it took much work but I really had to think about how I could set that up mm. and in the end it was it was thinking about film uh, that that gave me the idea as to how I could to set up that first chapter. So look, consciously, no, but, you know, as you eloquently pointed out before, so much happens on a subliminal level. So I suspect that on a subconscious level, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, because that image of them all um, in that dystopian landscape on the bus, it's just I felt like I, I feel like I've seen this image before in my mind. It was so strong. Um and yeah, so beautiful. Um, uh, thank you. Oh, it's such an incredible book. Um, now, I think I could talk to you for another hour, but um, <laughs> probably need to wrap it up. Um, so Waking Romeo is available, obviously, in all the big bookshops, local bookshops, independent bookshops, online. Um, yeah, is there anything else that you wanted to add, Catherine? No, just thank you for your time. It's been such a pleasure talking to you tonight. Oh, thank you so much for chatting. It's been so lovely talking about the writing process and your gorgeous book.